Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show comes in three parts. First, a discussion of the recent Iowa caucuses and the upcoming presidential election primaries. Then, in our coffee break, meet a new scholar who studies American public opinion on taxation. And finally, a look at a new book on participatory budgeting. My guest in the studio today is Molly Reynolds, a fellow in the Governance Studies Program. She studies Congress and is here to help us understand what's going on in the presidential primaries. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thanks, Fred. It's great to be here. So in the Iowa caucuses recently, we saw the Republican Party outcome as Cruz, Trump, and Rubio, and the Democratic contenders, Clinton and Sanders, virtually tied. Did anything surprise you about the outcome? There were no major surprises for me, but uh, two sort of more moderate ones. So on the Republican side, um, I was... A little surprised about how well uh, Rubio performed, uh, particularly vis-a-vis Trump. So there were a lot of reasons going in, um, including some polling evidence that sort of late deciders uh, were breaking for Cruz over Trump. The fact that Trump had didn't really have um, a, what we think of as a real Iowa field operation and some sort of demographic factors that uh, in terms of uh, evangelical support, particularly for Ted Cruz, um, we know historically that uh, evangelicals are a really key uh, block in the Iowa caucus. So there were a lot of reasons to sort of be skeptical of the Trump polling lead. So in that sense, not super surprised that uh, that Cruz won. But I was surprised um, at just how close Rubio in third place got to um, got to Trump. And this has been, I think, reflected really well since the, the caucuses when, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of media reports about how, you know, Rubio's the big winner despite finishing third. It's a little counterintuitive, but the Iowa caucuses are a huge expectations game. And so Rubio did better than expected. And so that's uh, one surprise. And then um, on the the Democratic side, I was a little surprised at uh, sort of just how close the contest was. So Hillary Clinton uh, had contested the Iowa caucuses before. Uh, you know, she was there in 2008. And she learned, I think, the campaign learned a lot of lessons from that experience. She came um, in third in She came in third in 2008 uh, behind both Obama and John Edwards. Uh, and there was, I think, a real sense that uh, she... Uh, Obviously, hadn't run the kind of campaign there in 2008 that she wanted to, and that this was the this was the chance to make up for that. And so, I was a little surprised at ju- sort of just how close that contest was. But again, no, uh, there was nothing that had me uh, had me waking up the next morning thinking, "Wow, this is a, this is a real shocker." I think a lot of people were surprised to learn that a coin toss determined the outcome in at least six of the Clinton Sanders voting uh, locations. Yeah, wow. So, and she won them all. Yeah. So the um, it is it is true that uh, in a handful of precincts, the Iowa caucus rules um, on both sides, but especially on the Democratic side, um, are pretty complicated. And the function of the individual precinct caucuses is actually to allocate delegates um, to go up to the, the county conventions. And if there's a if there's a tie uh, in terms of the uh, delegate al- allocation, you have to decide it somehow. And uh, turns out that under Iowa Democratic Party rules, that involves a coin toss. There are a lot of sort of quirky features of the Iowa caucus, and that I think is one that uh, folks didn't necessarily know about before this week. 
Let's stick with the uh, quirkiness of the Iowa caucus and also with, with apologies to my producer and audio engineer, Zach Kulzer, who is an Iowa native. It's often said that Iowa caucus voters are not representative of American voters generally, and, and they represent a very tiny, tiny fraction of, of all the voters. So why do we pay so much attention to the Iowa caucuses? Right. So first of all, um, yes, Iowa voters are different than the overall electorate. Um, Iowa as a state is uh, it's whiter than uh, most other states. The uh, folks who participate in the Iowa caucus tend to be more ideologically extreme on both sides um, than the average Democratic or Republican voter nationally. So Democratic voters in Iowa in the Iowa caucuses tend to be more liberal. Republican voters tend to be more conservative. That's actually a feature of caucus goers generally, so not just in Iowa. Um, Iowa's the most famous caucus, but other states use caucuses. And we have some political science research that shows that, in general, folks who go to participate in caucuses tend to be at the extremes of their party. So as for why we pay so much attention to the Iowa caucus, I'd say there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here. Did we start paying attention to Iowa because it's important, or did Iowa become important because we pay so much attention to it? Two things that I do think are worth noting. One, um, the Iowa caucus makes for great media coverage. Um, as we were just talking about, it's quirky, especially on the Democratic side. You know, we ask people to go and not cast ballots in the Democratic case, but to stand in a room and, you know, supporters of one candidate go to this corner and supporters of the other candidate go to a different corner. And there's uh, there's bargaining and there's persuasion. And so it's a really fun thing, I think, for um, for the media to cover. Uh, we also ask presidential candidates to go to a largely rural state and talk about issues that are a little foreign to voters in other parts of the country. So I think ethanol is a great example of this. We spend, presidential candidates spend a lot of time talking about ethanol in Iowa, and it's just not something that the average American sort of knows or cares about. So I think in that sense, um, part of why um, the Iowa caucus is so important and why we care so much about it is sort of because um, it's, a, it's a great news story. At the same time, I do think it's important to note that there is, um, to the extent that the results of the Iowa caucus can help voters in other primary and caucus states develop expectations about how electable a candidate is, there is some political science evidence that shows that these kind of bandwagon effects are real, that in nominating contests, voters will tend to go for candidates who they think can win. And there's no better evidence that you're capable of winning than being able to say, I want in Iowa, I want in New Hampshire, that sort of thing. I don't want to dismiss the Iowa caucuses entirely as um, just sort of a good media story or uh, kind of a fun quirk of the American political system. They, um, as an early nominating contest, they can serve an important role in the process. But I do think that part of why we pay attention to them is because we've decided to pay attention to them. Okay. Well, speaking of New Hampshire, uh, we have that in, in South Carolina, Nevada, Super Tuesday, a lot of other contests coming up as of the time of this taping. Uh, what do the results from Iowa tell you about the shape of the continuing race for the nomination on both sides? Sure. So I'll start on the Republican side. And again, if we think about the three candidates who did the best in Iowa, so we have Cruz and Trump and Rubio. Um, for Rubio, I think the 
um, sort of interesting thing to watch in these next few contests um, is sort of is he able to break out of what we've been what we've taken to calling the establishment lane? Uh, so he's been grouped in with Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, and John Kasich as being more in line with uh, the preferences of quote-unquote establishment Republicans. And there's some evidence that when they when they beat expectations, they get more media attention, um, which might be helpful for Rubio as he tries to sort of break out of this pack. I think for Cruz, the next thing to watch is that it is true that Iowa winners, um, even though they ultimately, at least on the Republican side, were not successful uh, nominees in either of the last two contests. We saw um, Mike Huckabee win in 2008. We saw Rick Santorum win in 2012. We do often observe um, a bump in the New Hampshire polling for, uh, for the Iowa winner. So I think that it'll be interesting to see if that comes through for for Cruz, um, sort of longer term, his Iowa strategy of really honing in on both evangelical voters and very conservative voters may or may not be helpful to him as he tries to win the nomination. For Trump, I think the interesting thing will be to look at how does the fact that he did not win, he came in second, um, really take away from his identity as a winner? So he's made a sort of central piece of his campaign, this idea that, quote, America doesn't win anymore. Um, If I'm president, we will win again. And sort of really identified with this concept of the winner. There'll be so much winning. So much winning. And so given that, um, and given what I said earlier about the existence of uh, bandwagon effects and the idea that we'll see sort of voters move towards uh, candidates who they think can win. What will sort of happen to Trump's campaign when this sort of one piece of his campaign strategy uh, is perhaps less available to him going forward? Um, For the Democrats, I think the biggest sort of takeaway from Iowa moving to the next um, few contests is that the contests will probably not be over as quickly as certainly Hillary Clinton was hoping, um, and probably as quickly as many people were expecting. So I think that going into the Iowa caucuses, had Clinton really run to a resounding victory in Iowa, um, that would have been a sort of much stronger signal that Uh, she'd be able to uh, wrap up the nomination more quickly. Sanders is widely expected to win in New Hampshire. Um, He's polling very well. He has represented Vermont, the state next door, uh, for his long political career. He's He's a very familiar quantity to New Hampshire voters. So while we may see Hillary Clinton make some gains in the polls in New Hampshire before uh, before the primary, um, no one I think is really expecting her to win, which then begs the question of sort of what's her optimal strategy. And so my colleague, John Hudak, has suggested that she basically not outright skip uh, New Hampshire, but really de-emphasize New Hampshire as part of her strategy going forward and move on to South Carolina and Nevada, which are the next two contests for Democrats. And they're in states where she's both expected to do quite well. And in the case of Nevada, a state where she did quite well in 2008, in the um, 2008 Nevada caucuses. And so I think those are sort of the the real takeaways um, from Iowa as we look towards New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina. Well, let's uh, let's broaden our our scope and just talk about primaries and and caucuses more generally, the the overall procedure. 
there's a project here at Brookings that looks at primaries and politics, and our and our colleague Elaine Kmark, who who directs the Center for Effective Public Management, she has a book out called Primary Politics. Why do we choose our party nominees in this long and convoluted process? Yes, yes. Uh, thanks for uh, mentioning Elaine's book. It's a really great book, and I'd recommend it to anyone who has a real interest um, in these kinds of questions. The big takeaway from that book, the sort of fundamental answer to your question, is that the reason we have this convoluted system is because there's no single actor who's in charge of the entire process. So we have the two national party committees, the Democratic National Committee, the Republican National Committee, who try their hardest to keep control over the respective processes of their two parties across the country. Um, But individual state parties and in some cases individual state legislatures have incentives to try and subvert that control from the national parties And then the national parties, in turn, have to decide whether and how to discipline states that defect from the strategy that the national committees are trying to put forward. So a great example of this um, was in 2008 on the Democratic side, when both Michigan and Florida, the state parties tried to move up their primaries to earlier in the calendar than the national party wanted. And so Michigan and Florida scheduled their primaries. The DNC told them if they had them on those days their delegates would not be seated at the convention. Then we had candidates pulling out of the primaries and a sort of protracted battle between the state parties and the national party. Eventually, the, there was a compromise and um, both uh, Michigan and Florida had their delegates seated at the convention with half a vote each. And so that begs the question of, well, if the national party is eventually going to let them in anyway. Do we have an incentive to to listen to the parties when they threaten to not seat us? That sort of thing. And so um, then if we were to think that, you know, maybe Congress could fix this, they have really very little incentive to get involved. And so what Elaine argues is that given this sort of lack of a central actor who's responsible for sort of making this process more logical or more efficient, uh, we're likely to see sort of incremental change that's in line with um, the interests of the parties. So it sounds like uh, those who call for perhaps a a national primary day for each of the parties just aren't ever going to see their wish come true. I think that's right. And I think that a a national primary would certainly just change the dynamics of the uh, of the nominating process. And so I think a great way to think about this is to think about the Electoral College. And if we think about sort of what one of the arguments for the Electoral College is, is the idea that it forces candidates to spend time and resources and energy on a wider range of states than if it was just a straight national popular vote. So if it was just a popular vote, we'd see lots of time in California, lots of time in New York, lots of time in Texas, that sort of thing. But uh, the need to build a coalition of electoral college votes means that we'd see uh, candidates spend much more time in states where there are many more voters and spend much less time and resources on smaller states. We'd also spend much less time talking about ethanol uh, in the early primaries if we had a national primary system. Well, let's take a quick break to meet a relatively new scholar here at Brookings uh, who researches taxation and is reading a biography of Eugene Debs. And after the break, I'll be back with Molly Reynolds to talk about what's happening in Congress. So my name is Vanessa Williamson, and I'm a fellow in governance studies. 
So I grew up in New York City, at least when I was a little kid. I lived there till I was about seven. And then I moved to Sacramento, California, which is my real hometown. I think I was always interested in politics. Um, even from when I was a, a very little kid, I remember pretty vividly uh, the first Clinton election, and that was when I was 11. So um, I've just always cared a lot about how we make decisions as a country and social justice and things like that. Um, I mean, income inequality, climate change, there are a lot of really crucial issues on the table. But I think above all, the question is, can we get the country to make decisions together again? And I think none of these huge problems that we face, you know, nationally and globally, are going to be resolved if we can't um, make our politics work again. So uh, my main project right now is a book uh, on how Americans think about taxes, uh, which is usually people assume a pretty depressing story. You know, Americans hate taxes, et cetera, et cetera. It's just not true. Americans are actually remarkably positive about taxation. They see being a taxpayer as sort of a central part of their public life, right? To be a taxpayer is to be someone who contributes to your community, to be someone who deserves to be represented by government. And um, it's something people express real pride in. So back in the revolutionary period, um, not only were people fighting on the strength of their taxpaying status to have representation, but even one of the incidents that people commonly think of as uh, a fight against taxes, the Boston Tea Party, was actually a fight against a corporate tax loophole. So, right, because there was one particular company that was allowed particular um, particular tax privileges, and uh, American colonists didn't much like that. So it's a very different story from how it's commonly perceived today. Well, the book that I'm reading right now uh, is a great book. I'm really enjoying it. It's called The Bending Cross, and it's a biography of Eugene Debs, who's, uh, I think, mostly forgotten outside of, outside of academia these days. But he was a labor organizer. He helped organize workers uh, who had been working on the railroads, uh, and had, he spent his entire life fighting corporate monopoly power. And it's uh, a history that I think is mostly forgotten, but I think very relevant to the contemporary period. It's a, just a fascinating history because he's such an American. You know, he's this sort of Midwestern guy, sort of small town guy. You know, he didn't care much about the philosophers behind, you know, socialism or anything else. What he cared about was making sure that people who did an honest day's work got an honest day's pay. And now back to Molly Reynolds here in the studio. Molly, it seems like Congress is uh, always basically doing nothing during the presidential election year. What does Congress have to do this year? Congress has to do very little. The biggest thing that Congress needs to address in some way, shape, or form between now and the presidential election in November, uh, which is also, uh, it's worth noting, an election for all 435 members of the House and uh, one-third of the Senate, uh, is they have to do something about appropriations. And so the way that discretionary uh, government programs like defense, scientific research, some health programs, education, that sort of thing, the way these programs are funded is on a year-to-year -year basis. And uh, Congress has to, by 
the 1st of October, which is when last year's appropriations deal runs out. They have to find a way to push money out the door for these government programs, at least temporarily. Uh, What we've seen in the past two presidential election years, so um, in both 2008 and 2012, um, is Congress chose to uh, sort of punt this particular responsibility. Uh, They decided in late summer or uh, early fall, so late August, early September, to pass a temporary uh, continuing spending bill that took them through the start of the new fiscal year and into the next calendar year when we uh, will see a new Congress and a new president. So that that's a sort of fallback option if they if they can't get something done. But really, this idea of getting of pushing money out the door for government programs is the biggest thing that they have to do in some way this year. Well, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, just recently suggested that he won't take any action this year on issues that could be divisive to the Republican conference in the mm-hmm. Senate, like trade deals and mm-hmm. the authorization to use military force against ISIS. I mean, super important policy issues. Do you think Congress is going to be able to tackle any issue of substance apart from the appropriations that you talked about? Right. So I think what we see here with uh, Mitch McConnell is that Mitch McConnell is behaving exactly like you would expect the majority leader of a tenuous majority to be acting. There are 34 seats up for re-election this fall in the Senate, and 24 of them are held by Republicans and 10 of them are held by Democrats. And within that group of 24 Republican seats, there are a number of Republican senators who represent states that were won by Barack Obama in 2012 and senators who uh, are going to face close re-election contests. So this is folks like Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, Mark Kirk in Illinois, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, that sort of thing. And so given that Mitch McConnell has um, worried about whether his party will still be in the majority um, come the new Congress, uh, he's doing exactly what we'd expect him to do in this situation, Um, sort of keeping bills off the floor that might both make his party in the Senate look less unified um, and more divided, and also keeping bills off the floor that might make those vulnerable senators from his party cast politically problematic votes that might uh, be used as campaign fodder against them by their Democratic opponents in the fall. And then I think it's also important to note that if we sort of add in intra- congressional dynamics between the House and the Senate, McConnell's task gets sort of even uh, even harder. So if we imagine that there was something that McConnell wanted to try to get done, the fact that in the House, um, the House Republican Party has been much more restive uh, in recent years, particularly at the end of um, 2015, than the, the Senate Republican Party. And so I think it's in McConnell's interest to also avoid sort of introducing issues that will instigate more hostility for new Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. From a a policy perspective, the fact that Congress is uh, unlikely to take up some of these important issues, uh, that's a challenge. But I think that we shouldn't be surprised that this is what um, what McConnell has uh, announced that he's planning to do. So there's, uh, there's talk that, and there always is talk in a presidential election year, about how the fortunes of the candidates, the two uh, candidates in the general election, uh, will impact the composition of those, um, 
of the Senate races, of the House races. And so I know that's one thing McConnell is, is looking at, just depending on who the nominees are and how it turns out, what impact that will have on the Senate. But over on the House side, is there really any chance that the House would flip from the uh, Republican control to the Democratic um, control? There's certainly, from where I sit right now, there's very, very little chance of that happening. So Republicans in the House have a very large majority right now. And they have a large majority that's built on a lot of very safe seats for Republicans. And so um, there are there are relatively few uh, House races that are considered actually competitive this year. And so the chances of um, House control changing, I think, are, are very small. I think depending on who the, the presidential candidates are and kind of depending on the dynamics that that race sets for uh, down ticket races in the Senate and the House. It's possible we could see the Democrats sort of close that gap in House seats between Republicans and Democrats somewhat. But I find it very difficult to imagine that Democrats would actually take back the House this fall. All right, last question about uh, about Congress. Do you, do you think there's any chance that we'll have another one of these uh, showdowns in the fall on the budget or the debt ceiling or whatever? Yeah, so um, I don't think we'll see a sort of major showdown. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that when Congress passed um, a budget deal last October, just before uh, John Boehner left um, the speakership and Congress, one of the things that was included uh, in that deal was a resolution of the debt ceiling issue that takes us through, I believe, February 2017. So the debt ceiling is off the the table as an issue for this election year, which is in probably in the interest of both parties, which is why they did it. Um, so we we won't see a showdown over that. There are some places in the budget process this year where we could see kind of interesting partisan conflicts both across the parties and especially within the parties. But I'm not expecting sort of a major uh, a major hold your breath budget showdown between now and the election. Well, Molly, thanks for joining me today. I'm glad you've uh, you're on the program. Thanks for having me, Fred. This is great. You can learn more about Molly Reynolds and her work on our website at brookings.edu slash governance. And now my colleague Bill Finan in the Brookings Institution Press talks to Holly Russin-Gilman about her new book, Democracy Reinvented, Participatory Budgeting and Civic Innovation in America. Gilman is a Civic Innovation Fellow at New America. Holly, welcome. It was a pleasure to work with you on your new book, and I'm glad that we can talk about it today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all your help in making the book possible. The title of your book is Democracy Reinvented, Participatory Budgeting and Civic Innovation in America. Reinventing Democracy, that's a major claim. <laughs> I know we talked about that as a title. But before you explain how your book does that, can you first tell us what participatory budgeting is? It's a term that will be new for most readers and most listeners. Participatory budgeting is a process that engages everyday people to make decisions about public dollars. The process and the nomenclature of participatory budgeting began in Puerto Alegre, Brazil in 1989. After a 20-year military rule, a new political party, the Workers' Party, came into power, and they wanted to institute a process to gain legitimacy and truly engage the public in decision-making. Since then, the process has spread across the globe in over 1,500 localities. It first came to the United States in 2009 when one Chicago alderman put a million dollars of his discretionary menu money into the hands of the people. 
Menu money or discretionary funds are used for brick and mortar, so they're capital funds. And in the United States, the process has primarily been limited to capital dollars. We've seen the process expand exponentially in the United States. Starting with $1 million in one ward, we've seen over half of the New York City Council using participatory budgeting. Cities from Boston and Cambridge to Long Beach, California, and Vallejo implementing the process. And it's been supported by the White House as part of our broader international commitments under the Open Government Partnership. So how do people, regular people, citizens, take part in this I can see that that at the city government level, it's the aldermen, the city council who make it available. But how does how do citizens participate? So in the United States, the way it's worked is that people in a local area come out for a community session where they learn about the process. And then there's a series of neighborhood assemblies broken up neighborhood by neighborhood where people come out and they identify local capital needs in their areas. So everything from park benches to new supplies for schools and people sign up to be budget delegates. These budget delegates take the large proposals that are given at these neighborhood assemblies and work over several months to make them into viable budget proposals. So they work directly with government officials to make proposals that can be enacted into policy, which are then brought back to the public in an open vote, which elected officials have pledged to implement. In some places, such as Boston, they've done the first youth-only participatory budgeting process. And I talk a little bit about that in the book and the process of empowering youth ages 12 to 25 to participate. Really? That young? Yeah. It's an incredible way to expose people to civic engagement and to make them feel empowered in their communities. You worked in the White House as an advisor on the Open Government Initiative. What was that position and how did it promote participatory budgeting? It seems like the the fact that the White House has taken note of this means that this this is catching on at a national level too. So I was very fortunate to serve in the Office of Science Technology Policy for Todd Park, our chief technology officer. And in that role, I was working on the Open Government Partnership, which is a multi stakeholder initiative of around 65 countries pledging open government participation and transparency. The U.S. is one of the founding members, and we've worked closely with civil society in implementing this. As one of the founding members, we promote this initiative abroad, but we also have to work on it domestically. So this means that every agency in the U.S. government has an open government action plan, how they're going to really put the principles of open government into use. And one of the things I worked on is thinking about opportunities to take existing pots of money, such as HUD's Community Development Block Grants, and thinking about could participatory budgeting as a mechanism be used with communities that are already receiving these public dollars. And as it turns out, there's some eligibility in communities that are already receiving these public dollars to do participatory pilots such as participatory budgeting. So we were able to work to get participatory budgeting in one of the United States commitments as part of our broader international open government partnership plans. So I'm going to ask you a personal question. What led you to be interested in this topic? Because it's it's new, it's groundbreaking, it's not your typical political scientist focus. 
You know, I think I first got excited about civic engagement in the Iowa caucuses in 2007. So a very timely (laughs) conversation. And, you know, seeing people coming out together and being engaged in this way sort of inspired me to want to think about other opportunities that we could engage people, not only during elections, but in between elections. And to see the opportunities for everyday people to be empowered to make decisions in the policies that affect them the most. You know, people in local communities have a lot of knowledge about those communities. And so the question and a big part of the book is focused on how do you tap into that expertise that people have on the local level? And how do you take that energy and harness it to make better governance decision making? So I was going to ask you about a quote in your book, uh, but I think you just answered my question. And and the quote is, participatory budgeting is an attempt to rescue politics from elitism. That's a driving force then in this entire movement. It's a good sign that you've read the book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think we used to have this ideal, you know, going back to Aristotle and even to the founding fathers, that politics was something that everyday people could do When you think of, you know, the Greek city-state, the ideal of the polis, this was a small area. This was a place where everyone knew each other. And as we've created more and more bureaucratic institutions, we've really turned over a lot of our decision-making to the power of elites. And while I think there are a lot of, you know, great opportunities and great policies that elites do, there's also an opportunity to tap into local level and to civic expertise. And I think it's a combination of elite technocratic expertise and local level democracy that can work to sort of reinvigorate uh, people's faith in institutions. And to reinvent democracy. And to reinvent democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Holly, thank you for dropping by to talk about your new book with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you and Brookings for all of your support. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, and listen to it in all the usual places. Remember to send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.